from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Fellow conspiracy realists, we are exploring a classic that is near and dear to uh, our collective heart. Uh, as, as you may know, uh, Matt, Noel, and yours truly work extensively in the world of audio fiction. And we had uh, just an amazing conversation with a good friend of the show, filmmaker Brett Wood, who created something called The Control Group. And though it may be fiction, it is very much based in fact. Yeah, this was one of the first fiction pods we ever did. And this was kind of your baby, Ben. You really helped with all the development and uh, all of the all of the stuff involving what led to this really, really fantastic show. Oh, credit where it's due. Paul Deccant and I helped out with it. There you go. Oh, and there's human experimentation involved in this one? I do believe that's correct. <laughs> Let's, uh, let's get on the slab. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We are joined with our super producer, Paul Deccant. Most importantly, you are you and you are here. And that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. A very special episode of our show today because we are delving into something that has always fascinated us, I think, as individuals and as a group. Uh, and that is the strange intersection of ethics and experimentation. Science. Uh, right. Science versus uh, the humanity of both the 
the experimenters and the experimentees. Uh, but we are not alone in this endeavor today. We are joined with a friend of the show, a filmmaker, Brett Wood, who just recently created How Stuff Works' first fiction podcast, The Control Group. Brett, thank you so much for coming on the show with us today. Brett Wood is excited to be here. <laughs> <laughs> and you are indeed Brett Wood. I will. We haven't fully confirmed. I haven't seen any identification. Did you guys get identification? No, they got it at the front desk. We have a new policy. Okay. He's, yeah. he, he's cool. He's he cool looks guys. a lot like Brett Wood. <laughs> he at least signed his name Brett Wood when he got in here, which is about the level of our security. Wow, man, you're really throwing our security team under the bus, Ben. <laughs> uh, so, Brett, we were we were extremely excited about the control group as we were learning more about the show and more about the real life things, events, people, and places that inspired the um, the the narrative of the control group. And from what we understand, this originally was a screenplay. Is that correct? Right. Uh, about six years ago, I wanted to make it as a film and uh, quickly realized that it was sort of beyond my means as an independent filmmaker to have, you know, this large hospital facility and a fair number of uh, of extras as patients in the hospital. And also, as we may get into a little bit later on, I ran into some problems with the locations where I wanted to shoot. Hmm. Um, so I then moved over to a different project, which is mostly set in a house which was uh, much more manageable for me. Is that one called Those Who Deserve to Die? That's coming up next. That one I've just finished and uh, have not yet shown anywhere. Or we're just finishing up the uh, sound and music. Uh, the Unwanted is the one we did instead of uh, the control group. Right. And uh, for anyone unfamiliar with the work, you are quite a prolific creator. Uh, you made The Unwanted in 2014, Psychopathia Sexualis in 2006, a documentary that we leaned on pretty <laughs> heavily right. in another show called Car Stuff. It's called Hell's Highway, the true story of highway safety films in 2003, which I cannot recommend enough if you want something with a disturbing twist. Well, those are upsetting. Oh, yes. I remember no. the Car Stuff episode. That was back in my heyday as super producer Noel Brown. That's true. That's mm -hmm. true. Mm -hmm. We go. We all go way back in this regard. And so, so I like yeah. I like where your work has taken you thus far and kind of where it's headed. Can you tell us like exactly what the control group is and what it's about? Sure. It's a uh, sort of a narrativization of uh, a couple of different threads that were going on in sort of psychological medicine and uh, covert government activities in the 1950s and 60s, uh, one of which is the government's drug testing programs, better known as MKUltra, mm -hmm. of course, Artichoke, Bluebird. There were lots of names for what they were doing, which is basically uh, secretly testing uh, drugs on people, preferably unsuspecting people, and trying to determine if these could be useful tools for either mind control or interrogation. And then the other thread of it is the uh, CIA sponsorship of experimental uh, psychological testing uh, you know, without any apparent connection to the, you know, covert interrogation uh, arm of what they were doing. So they would ju they just set up a uh, front organization to fund colleges, uh, hospitals, doctors to just do experiments that might kind of fit in with the kind of stuff they're interested in. 
namely things like erasing someone's memory, getting them to unlock the secrets which they may be protecting. Um, you can sort of see anything that might be applicable, they were kind of open to. And a lot of the doctors who did the research didn't know they were sort of doing it uh, under the sponsorship of the CIA. And uh, the CIA called it a cutout, which I love that term, <laughs> instead of a front. It's like we, have, we have several cutouts that we can hide this behind, and we're going to hide this behind the cutout known as the Society for the Investigation of Human Ecology. I love it. What does that even it's mean? Great, it's just like <laughs> such an important sounding, like who doesn't believe in That's real? human ecology? That's yes. what they called it? Yes. yes. And, uh, well, I guess if we can announce here for the first time that pretty soon we are going to make available Society for the Investigation of Human Ecology t-shirts at our oh. uh, control group merchandise shop. So just stand by for more details on that. But um, I just love the idea of this of this uh, nonprofit organization handing out money to uh, ambitious researchers. And there's a bit of an ego feed too, right? It's like we believe in your work. It sounds kind of like Illumination Global Unlimited, doesn't it? <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny. Like, this is why I feel so at home here, you know, mm-hmm. within the How Stuff Works family is because like with the Driver's Ed documentary, mm-hmm. and I know that MK Ultra has been a subject on Stuff They Don't Want You to Know and other shows because, you know, your audience sort of relishes these secret histories of uh, – not always the underbelly of what's going on in our society and government, but just like being in the know of the things that were not in your high school textbook. Absolutely. Well said. So let's dive into your research process as you were gathering material and documentation for the script itself and for the story. What what kind of stuff did you find? Where did you look? Um, mostly, well— the interesting thing is there's not much first-generation information mm-hmm. about this stuff. Um, the whole thing would have been secret and forgotten were it not for the survival of, I think, seven boxes of financial records, receipts. And it was from those documents that people were able to piece together this history. Um, but there are a number of great books on the subject. Mm-hmm. As far as the CIA testing, there is um, The Search for the Manchurian Candidate by John Marks. And um, as far as the medical research, there's one person in particular who I was – who is kind of the unofficial inspiration for our main doctor in the control group. And the real-life doctor's name is Ewan Cameron. Mm-hmm. And he was a doctor in uh, Quebec. He was the head of the American Psychiatric Association. You know, you couldn't be more highly regarded, but yet he was conducting these – today we might consider ethically questionable – experiments in uh, manipulation of the mind, which I can't wait for us to start talking about the details of those. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, you know, you, the thing is when you read about all this stuff, it just doesn't seem possible. It's, it's outrageous. It's fascinating. But you can't really imagine it actually happening. And so what I want to do with the control group is sort of imagine what would it be like to actually be subjected to um, – something we call psychic driving, mm-hmm. which is where Dr. Cameron would um, – he would often record it himself. He would record a tape which would play in a constant loop. You are not being kind to others. You need to open up and be more open with your emotions. You need to – you know, and just sort of a, a mantra or a, a reinforcement of the kind of behavior the person should have. 
And so that tape would play constantly, constantly, constantly. So like days at a time? For days at a time. And uh, in headphones, and sometimes they would have it like a helmet where it's wired so a person could get up and walk around. And they even had um, speakers built into mattresses so that when someone's asleep, you will be kind to others. You will be more responsive to treatment. Um, So that's psychic driving. Okay, so that psychic driving, was it done on patients in like a psychiatric ward or where – who was this done to? Yeah, and it wasn't – that's the thing. It was done to just like regular people. Um, There was a tendency to do a lot of this more on women and we, of course, address that. That's a big part of what the control group is. Um, Some of that I think is the ego of the doctor who if he's going to shape and sculpt a patient Pygmalion style – he tends to want to do that more with a woman than a man. But I think also it feeds a lot into the fact that um, psychological issues are have traditionally sort of been tilted towards women. Like the best example is hysteria. That is something that if you take it by its original technical definition has to do you know, with the reproductive organs of a woman. That was the source from which the psychological problem emanated. Or we think a lot about uh, housewives in the 50s being prescribed tranquilizers. Mm-hmm. And for the men, they would just, you know, have an extra martini at lunch. That was their way of dealing with it. So there has often been this focus on psychological problems on women. And uh, and so that sort of became an important part of the control group as well. As an avenue of control, I think, given the misogyny that was institutionalized and still exists today – it seems like um, in in many cases with the benefit of retrospect, we're able as a society to look back and say, well, that person wasn't mentally ill. They just didn't want to be forced to marry that jerk. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And this I think that's I think that's a powerful thing. But the the idea of psychic driving too, I don't want us to lose that. At first, when you first hear it, it's easy to think. Well, I'm I'm familiar with that. I've had a song stuck in my head before. How bad can it be? You know, it can't be any worse than Despacito or something. But uh, there there are some other techniques that Dr. Cameron was using. Could you tell us a, a little bit about those, maybe starting with the sleep treatments? So as part of the psychic driving, um, you would need to have your mind sort of neutralized before the fresh – messages, these reinforcements are being allowed in your mind. They need to wipe the slate clean. And so they did that a couple of different ways. Um, but the cleaning process was called depatterning. And that means fix the mind so it no longer has a regular pattern of thought. It's open and neutral. And even people sub, you know, had uh, memory loss, long-term memory loss. They could remember what was happening to them now but couldn't think back into their past. That was the whole point. Wipe the slate clean so that we can replace it with the fresh messages, with the uh, psychic driving. Hmm. So the uh, one way they would do that is uh, ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, better known today as shock treatment, um, uh, doubled up with sleep therapy where they would tranquilize someone and have them sleep around the clock. And, you know, sleep is great. Mm-hmm. And to a certain degree, shock therapy even now is considered of uh, of use when correctly applied. But what they would do is give people shock treatment multiple times in a single day 
and according to one source, six times the voltage or dosage at which it is normally given. So it wasn't just like, you know, your your need a little mental tune-up. It was an attempt to really um, flatten the brain waves of the mind by excessively delivering shock treatment and then rest so that the body and the mind would just shut down. And you'd get woken up, mm-hmm. fed uh, more ECT, and which puts you right back to sleep, and then they would continue the drip or the pills. Uh, I think someone was telling me that phenobarbital is more commonly given as pills. So that was, I guess, how they would keep you in that deep sleep. Wow. And how how effective was this, at least the depatterning aspect? Um, you know, there, like I said, people did, you know, after this all came out, mm-hmm. um, a number of patients got together and sued Ewan Cameron, uh, claiming that they had, you know, erased their memories and, you know, uh, crossed these ethical barriers. So it certainly didn't seem to have the the curative effect that he was proclaiming it was going to have. Uh, it didn't completely mess up people's minds the way, say, uh, you know, uh, transorbital lobotomy might. So the effect, it was never proven to be especially effective either as a um, sort of a treatment for you know, general psychological uh, uh, difficulties. And it certainly was never applied to the kind of use that the CIA thought it might be viable for. So we'll never know if it was an effective way of mm-hmm. interrogating or brainwashing someone. And it doesn't seem to have been an especially effective way of curing someone's mental ills. Mm. And we'll learn more about that right after a quick word from our sponsor. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. So tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. 
Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. But you know, there is one thing that perhaps didn't exactly come out of this, but was utilized uh, within the MK Ultra trials and specifically within uh, the world of the control group, which is confinement. The uh, I don't want to give it away too much, but the cages, um, because that's something that we do see used in what we would, I guess, consider modern interrogation techniques, isolating someone, uh, not, not allowing them to sleep for long periods of time. Um, and we see some of that in this story as well. Yeah, and the, the when we talk about the cages in the in the podcast, it's a little bit of a fictionalization, just in terms of, but it, but it's true to the spirit of what was going mm-hmm. on. I mean, we had a lot of sensory deprivation, where someone would be kept in the dark with something over their eyes and something over their ears, so they can't hear, and sometimes with their hands inserted into something so they can't feel. Uh, as it, it's sort of like a version of the sleep therapies, so to just see how long a person could exist in that state before their mind gets weakened and becomes open to, you know, better programming, I guess. Um, and in the podcast, the characters talk about how, uh, you know, back in the day when this section, this ward was called the cages, people would just be left to wander and sit in their own filth. I mean, that's very well documented uh, from like back in the 1930s and 40s where you would have wards of people naked sitting in their own filth and just being given no treatment per se, um, a condition that existed. I think, you know, there was a lot of uh, mental hospital reform in the 1950s, so it was mostly cleaned up at that time. But, um, you know, so you have this this dichotomy between like excessive treatment and then no treatment where it's just a matter of pump some drugs in someone, neutralize the symptoms. And ultimately, that's what all this kind of was about. And if we talk a lot about some of the other uh, uh, medical visionaries who have done some pretty crazy things over history, usually the justification for what they did was that it eliminated the symptoms, but it didn't actually cure the disease. Um, And my favorite and I've thought about trying to dramatize this guy's work somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, was a guy named um, Henry Cotton. And in the 1920s, he had a big theory that uh, mental illness and health problems was were uh, triggered by different kinds of infection. And uh, – It's like t- bacterial infection? Bac- yeah. Okay. And – uh, chronic dental infection was one of the big ones because, you know, they didn't have great dental care back in the 1920s, no fluoridation of water. And so he would pull teeth and remove tonsils. And he had two sons and completely pulled all their teeth, adult teeth. Oh, wow. And gave people tonsillectomies. The colon, you know, lots of bacteria in the colon. He would remove people's colons. He would remove portions of their stomach. Uh, he would remove the spleens. So it was just all about taking out anything that was a possible source of infection. 
And you would be amazed at how, you know, high, highly regarded this guy was and how high up the professional ladder he was able to climb. He became the superintendent of the Trenton State Hospital. In New Jersey. In New Jersey. And, uh, you know, eventually people kind of realized, aha, well, his numbers look good on paper, but all he's doing is, you know, removing a, a you know, a potential cause. He's getting rid of symptoms, but he's not actually treating the illness. And usually in cases like that, what happens is we don't do that anymore and we don't talk about that anymore. And so, like, lobotomies are another great example. Lobotomies were considered so effective because they wiped out the symptoms. The they same. don't do the bad stuff anymore. <laughs> yeah. and <laughs> so get rid of their part of their brain that makes them act like a human. And part of it is the fact that you've You've physically changed them to not be able to do that anymore. And in the case of something like uh, shock therapy, they change their behavior because they don't want more shock therapy. Of course. You're still not treating the cause, but you're causing the symptom to go away either medically or through the fear instilled in them by – Well, it's like that idea that torture isn't particularly effective in getting good confession. It's just effective at getting – what you want to hear oh, or yeah, you'll some, get some kind of confession. Some amazing stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you torture someone enough, they'll tell you everything, anything. This guy you're talking about reminds me of like sort of like a sick, twisted John Harvey Kellogg type almost mm-hmm. where he's like into all this like holistic stuff, but he's treating the symptoms more than he is the actual illness, you know, enemas for everything, Ooh. like yogurt enemas and all this stuff. Kellogg's you know? a great guy because he's like the lighter side. Yeah, right, right. The right, same yeah. kind of visionary mm-hmm. and it's all about a good, a good colon. Get that gut floor <laughs> kid. Right, you know? right. And uh, we can kind of have fun with him, but then when you get into <laughs> someone who uh, is a little more barbaric in their treatments. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but it's the same. It's two sides of the same coin, this sort of uh, visionary uh, medicine that is not that grounded in the science of the illness that's being treated. Well, and this guy, the guy you're talking about, it sounds like he kind of developed a bit of a God complex around it too. When you're unchecked and you can do this stuff and you have this vision, you know, but no one's stopping you, then of course you're just going to push it as far as you can, right? Yeah, and no one's stopping you. And like in the case of you and Cameron, you're being made the uh, head of the American Psychiatric Association. Yeah. That's like total validation. It's like go take it further. And so, well, back to the control group, one of the things I wanted to do is what would one of these conversations be like with the Society for the Investigation of Human Ecology where they're coaxing him along and like maybe you should try pushing the envelope a little bit? And mm-hmm. because I wanted to – because the doctors who are doing these things are not monsters. They're ambitious and I think they all have good intentions even if they have egos kind of running rampant. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't take a whole lot of encouragement to get someone to maybe cross the threshold into something – a little less ethical than they might if they were um, not being fueled by so much encouragement and adoration. I think that's a really good point because in the real world, we see these sorts of situations coalescing in degrees of increments. It's not as if some shady person from a – what was that phrase, Brett? Cut out? Comes to you, One of their cutouts, Comes right? to you and says, let's see how much LSD we can pump into someone – uh, before we ruin their lives, uh, we're going to just get like 10 people 
and just take a spaghetti at the wall approach. <laughs> yeah. You know, that that's something that we ease into as people and it's very easy to rationalize those further steps, yeah. especially – and I think this is – this even goes to um, – the degree of victimization that some of the medical professionals experience, which is much lower than the patients, obviously, but they're they're being um, convinced that one must make certain sacrifices for the quote unquote greater good. And we actually have a clip from the control group uh, that I think touches on this, right, Matt? Oh yeah, this is this is great. This is from episode four. Uh, the name is Phenobarbital, and it's a discussion between a character named Summerhill and Dr. Hayes, and they're discussing funding uh, for the, I guess, the research that's being done at the hospital, as well as what types of things need to be done in order to continue that funding of the research. Get us a name. Start with that. It'll be a good measure of your progress. But if you hold out a little longer, do the detective work. Connect the dots. I'll try, but I can't help wondering whether or not we should be... I'll stop thinking about should. Should is a dirty word in research. Take yourself off the leash, Dr. Hayes. Allow yourself to run. You have a hunch? Follow it. Got an itch? Scratch it. An urge? Indulge it. And don't stop to ask whether it's something you should be doing. If it gives you a better understanding, that's all that matters. I love and detest this so much because it feels too real to me. Uh, having this person uh, from the outside group that controls the money that's going to fund the research come in and say, well, you know, don't you want to do something that's going to be different and beyond? I mean, I know you're 50, but you really got to think like a 26-year-old and push things harder. But he never once says anything about, you know, this is exactly what you need to do or anything like that. So he's got this weird plausible deniability with with him and his cutout. Mm. Um, but at the same time, he's convincing this doctor to push himself ethically to the to the boundary and perhaps beyond. And it makes me wonder just how much of that is actually what occurred during the MK Ultra trials. How much they were just pushing people without the CIA actually being the ones who are these dastardly who come up with the dastardly ideas that we then think about as being perhaps evil if you look back with hindsight. Uh, it just makes you wonder if they're they're literally just the pushers just getting the scientists to keep going that extra mile. Right, I think giving them the resources to keep going, giving them the encouraging uh you know stroking the ego a little mm -hmm. bit. And then also you have to remember in the 1950s, um, a couple of big things were happening at the time. And the biggest one is the Cold War. Yeah. And even though they didn't specifically talk about the applications of this to, you know, CIA activities, there was this sort of attitude that uh, certainly within the CIA that were behind in the race mm. with the Russians and the Chinese and the Koreans for mind control because they believed brainwashing was a real thing. And to some degree it is, but not – everyone believed that it was going to be the thing that was going to – you're going to either transmit something to change the way people think or put something in the water supply. 
at one point they wanted to put LSD in an entire city's water supply just to see what would happen. <laughs> um, <Jeez. laughs> or like uh, have some kind of drug or tool. And it's interesting, the, the Americans, as we are, we love gadgets. Uh, the Americans always wanted some kind of James Bondian type thing, whether it's a drug or a tool or a shot, you know, you give someone um, rather than the more effective means of mind control, which is to have a conversation with someone, earn their trust, let them talk and, uh, you know, share your ideas and eventually get them to come around to your way of thinking. That is the most effective means of mind control. But we don't have time for that. We want, you know, we want the magic bullet. We want the the spy device. So there was almost like a, a sense of espionage to what was going on mm-hmm. at the time, that there was there was a race to find um, either the secret of brainwashing on the, the part of the CIA or with medical science, there's always like a race to either find the cure or find the best treatment or be the person to break through the next threshold of psychological medicine. And a lot of times there's this attitude of, yeah, well, you know, there are some ethical issues with this, but if we succeed, it's for the greater good. So we're going to go ahead and do the do the experiment. And you know that persists today. There's always this sort of suggestion that if you break a few eggs, that's fine. But as you know, think of the millions of lives it's going to save if these test subjects die for the sake of science. You know, there's there's so many ways you can justify doing something unethical. So many ways you can talk yourself into, you know, believing that you're actually doing it for the greater good. The greater good is one of those things that is always such a – when you hear that phrase, you have to be very suspicious of it because when someone trucks it out, (laughs) someone's going to get hurt. Well, it's a power move, right? It's like I can tell you what the greater good is because Mm -hmm. I have the master plan. I see Mm -hmm. the big picture and you need to get on board. Yeah, our super producer, Paul, uses the phrase the greater good. Yeah, well, like, while, gripping, while gripping us by the elbow. <laughs> is, is, is it – okay, I'm going to play devil's advocate here okay. for a moment. Isn't there a greater good overall for humanity in some way? And, and this is just me devil's advocating. Yeah, it's called God's plan. Oh, geez. But I'll be completely serious. Like there are maybe things that humanity is going to face in our not so distant future choices we're going to have to make. Sure. Uh, they're going to be really hard and are probably going to end up killing lots and lots of people. Yeah, but isn't the problem that it's like the people in power, whether it's in like a an organization like a psychiatric hospital or a government that are usually the ones that dictate the agenda of mm. what that greater good is. And they're typically looking out for their best interest or the best interest of their cronies in some way, not necessarily the greater, greater good. It's more like this notion of I, I it's my greater good. I don't know. That's right. how I see it. Maybe it, that's cynical, but. I think you're right on. It's in that kind of situation, it's very easy to define the greater good as the things that are that make things that are good for me greater. I mean, I, I would <laughs> no. describe it as the status quo in many ways. You know? Sure, yeah, and also there are differing definitions. I mean, I was being a little bit glib, but there are differing definitions. For some people, a spiritual greater good is a world in which 100% of all living people follow the same specific religion. In uh, if we're looking at a purely soulless biological imperative, then the greater good is one in which no individuals matter. Uh, the human species just metastasizes and eventually gets to the stars. Neither of those are particularly great things for individuals, right? Well, let me tell you about my greater good. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, all right. Uh, so 
So we can see that motivation. And I think, Brett, your words of warning are astute and sorely needed, both in current age and in past ages. Uh, But we don't want to lose some of the conversation we were having about other mad scientists. Is it okay if we call them mad scientists? Is that that out of bounds? Because they're not necessarily insane, right? They're just – Mad with power? Yeah. They're not that they're not always angry either. So. <laughs> That's true. You might need a better term. Okay. You know. So perturbed scientists. There perhaps. we go. Hole in one. Okay. So these these perturbed scientists. Uh, could you tell us a little more? It sounds like you may have found a rogues gallery of people <laughs> that you considered uh, investigating further. Well, you know, so we I talked about Henry Cotton mm-hmm. and Walter Freeman is the person who's really behind the uh, lobotomy. And uh, I don't know that we need to add too much to his legacy. Um, uh, Jean-Martin Charcot uh, was a 19th century scientist, and his big thing was hysteria. And on the plus side, he was one of the first to say hysteria is not just a female malady. Men can have symptoms of hysteria as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, But then he kind of got the show business bug. Oh. Not literally, but um, he would have these demonstrations and invite people into the yeah, surgical theater and have patients come out and perform for this audience of medical dignitaries. And what would happen is uh, women who suffered from this particular brand of hysteria would have seizures and contortions and their bodies would twist into you know very strange uh, positions and then sometimes have something uh, – sort of called an erotic ecstasy. And uh, these became very popular among the intelligentsia and the medical community. And there's even uh, one woman named Blanche Whitman who became known as the queen of hysterics because when she would perform, she could always be relied upon to have the convulsions at the right time and really exhibit her erotic ecstasy in a way that was dramatic. Mm-hmm. So at a certain point, what are we what are we proving and studying anymore? Um, but it's and again, it's it's women who were the ones put on exhibit. And there's a very famous painting of Charcot holding um, Blanche Whitman in front of an audience of men in this uh, surgical environment. Um, but careful with the mad scientist thing because I. I have a favorite doctor who, by a lot of standards, would be considered a mad doctor, but actually was a brilliant surgeon and um, contributed an awful lot to our understanding of anatomy. And that's John Hunter, who was an 18th century resurrectionist. Mm-hmm. And he was the first who really championed anatomizing bodies, uh, cutting open bodies to understand them that way. This was when there was still a big taboo on it. Mm-hmm. And you would only get a body if... Uh, If someone was hanged or executed, the surgeons could have their bodies, and that became a big trade. And then eventually they started robbing graves to get the bodies so that the students would have something to practice on. And when I first was reading about him, it was in a book, a really sensational book about like the corpse robbers and the grave (laughs) robbers of uh, 18th century. But I read a really amazing biography of this guy, and it totally showed that he was breaking down these – these sort of notions we have that you can't cut open a human body and that it's degrading to have your body, um, you know, uh, 
violated. Yeah, and that's it, what they would call it, right? Yeah, and 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 it was like a and when people would be executed, there it would be a very frightening thing for them to realize that their body's going to be given to the school for the young mm. surgeons to practice on. But he totally believed in it and uh, anatomized so many bodies over his lifetime and really broke that barrier and helped facilitate getting to the point where bodies were provided to medical school so that you could learn from the thing that's going to, you know, you're going to actually be operating on. I'm going to tell you this anecdote, which you may want to cut out for sensitive listeners, or we should just give a little trigger warning. Um, Go right ahead, Brett. <laughs> give, give him that trigger one warning. One of my favorite stories of him, and it's shocking, but at the same time, it shows this guy, John Hunter, was so believed in what he was doing. Um, he didn't have a lot of way of testing certain things. Mm -hmm. And so he wanted to find out like certain liquids in the body, how they've aged after death. And so one of the great, they quote it in this book, um, where he took the semen of a corpse and put it in his mouth and like Oh, kind of squished it around. Uh, yep, swishing around. And it was like, yep, it has a a, a metallic uh, brackish taste. And so, you know, but how else are you going to like test things like that? But that just shows to him that the body, it was not, it had so been, be, it had been demystified for him. He just wanted sure. to learn about the flesh and all of its <laughs> visceral glory. Exactly. And was willing to do everything to better understand it. So, you know, on one hand, we have our scientists who are doing shocking things, but at the same time, a lot of times, not always, um, it yields knowledge and it leads to uh, demystification and, and the, the loss of certain uh, uh, taboos that we have about the body. Hold on a second, guys. Let's not go there quite yet. First, let's take a quick sponsor break. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. So tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. You know, that's something we've discussed on the show numerous times. What do you do with research that's gained from human experimentation over the years, mm-hmm. like Unit 731 or some of the things that the Nazi Party was doing? What do you do with the – because there is – there's information, raw data that is collected there about the horrible things a human can endure and like we we kind of had a discussion last time like do you just throw that away do you keep it locked away somewhere do you actually use it towards medical research in the future I mean, what do you think Brett what should we do with all this stuff I mean once the deed is done you certainly have to try to gain from the knowledge it provided as long as you're not encouraging further you know unethical experimentation but do you feel like there are things still going on. And I I wanted to try to suggest this with a control group that we look back on the horrors of the mid-1950s and the people in the mid-1950s look back on the horror of the turn of the century and so on and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. Do you sort of feel like what's the horror that people are going to look at us 50 years from now and sort of realize they did what? Absolutely. And it's Fantastic that you bring this up. Well, tragic and disturbing, mm-hmm. but also fantastic because that's a, one of the questions that we had for you. Uh, and it's sort of a two-part question. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first is, what do you see as the the importance or the the um, the crucial relevance of a work like the Control Group in the modern age? And that's. That's a big question to throw yeah, yeah. at someone. But then the second part is exactly what you were asking us. Do you think it is possible that there is experimentation occurring today uh, that will later be looked at with opprobrium by future historians? I was, tr- we was trying to make a list and it was thinking, you know, one of the big disadvantages is that a lot of that stuff, if it is occurring, will be classified, right? Mm-hmm. So we only found out about things like psychic driving where, as you said, seven boxes escaped a purge, Yeah, you know. Um, and it, it, what do we know now? We know that there are some pretty uh, boundary-violating experiments with big data, right? Yeah. That might be something. But as far as suppressed medical experimentation, I, I don't know. I can conjecture. Well, you know, I was thinking about this. And again, I think it's uh, – and it's part of that double-edged sword of while we judge the past, we shouldn't judge the past too harshly mm-hmm. um, because um, a lot of times this was the best they had. And so they were, they were sincerely, desperately trying to deal with certain illnesses and we may not agree with the way they treated it, but they were desperate and there were no other ways of really treating it. And it's kind of, you know, I, I sort of feel – horrible bringing it up, but when you think about something like chemotherapy, mm-hmm. it's, it's all we got right now. It's, it's, it is the thing that is, or one of the things that is the most effective in treating cancer. You know, 50 years from now, when we look, if someone looks back, they're going to say, you did what? You, you know, you put radioactive material in someone's body so that the body would f- kind of 
you know, fight and kill some portion of something that's growing inside it. But it it worked. It was what we were able to do with the technology we have. So I'm not by that saying that chemotherapy is bad and radiation therapy is bad. But, um, you know, don't judge – Hopefully, we won't be judged harshly because it's it is the best. We're doing the best we can, mm-hmm. and we have to cut some slack to the people who were. You know, it's hard to say that cut slack to people who are performing lobotomies and you know excessive shock treatment and things in the past. I don't think it was malicious, and it was the best they had in treating these things. And fortunately, things have gotten a lot better. So the treatments were using today we know are more effective and they're focused and they're specific. But at the same time, technology is going to reach a point to where they have genetic modification and these Mm -hmm. uh, diseases just disappear. Mm -hmm. And they're going to look back and say, well, why didn't y'all do that? And, you know, we're going to be the people who were, you know, putting people in iron lungs, basically. We didn't have the cure. This was what we had. So, you know, it's a certain amount of tolerance for the quote-unquote mad scientists of the past is is called for, I think. Well said. Yeah. yeah. That really answers the question that you brought up too, Matt. It's like, what do we do with this research? And sometimes the means justify, not justify the ends, but at least you can accept the results as like something of value, even in retrospect, I don't know. It's, it's, it's like, hard. It's, it's really like hard. It's, how do we make it not a total loss? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Almost yeah. to like honor the people mm-hmm. that were subjected to this stuff. It's like you don't – what do you just out of like pure ethical kind of panicky mm-hmm. outcry toss out positive results from these experiments? Mm-hmm. That seems counterproductive and, and almost disrespectful to those who may have lost their lives or been damaged in these kinds of experiments. Yeah. I'm going to be a little bit conspiratorial mm-hmm. in this and this is just my opinion. I would absolutely be unsurprised if it turned out that there were unethical and indeed illegal experiments being conducted through some tenuous, uh, tenuously attached form of government funding because one thing that's really interesting about Ewan Cameron that we missed, I believe, we mentioned it but I don't think we emphasized it enough. He was from Quebec. These experiments that he was conducting occurred in Canada. So in this case, the CIA and the the various cutouts were not funding experimentation domestically. It happened abroad. So if something like this is happening in our current world, it is probably happening somewhere where law enforcement or rule of law is a little more lax, a little weaker. But I – I feel like just with all the medical breakthroughs that are occurring or on the cusp of occurring, it is – less plausible that something like that is not happening, which I know sounds like maybe I'm a little tinfoil on this one. No, because – and there's, there's a sort of a suggestion of that in reading accounts of uh, the CIA, CIA activities. There's a thing which comes up and we talk about it in episode 10 uh, called terminal studies and that's where you conduct an experiment on someone to the point of no return. And uh, there's no evidence that any terminal studies were performed in the United States, but at least one source sort of says, well, but some studies were performed in other countries Mm. on people who are not Americans, like prisoners of war, and we don't know what happened there. And so there's – I wouldn't say, you know, a good chance, 
I would just say that it's entirely plausible that terminal studies were performed on yeah, you know, and and again, this is like the Korean War. This mm-hmm. is war. We we're losing, or we're we're behind in the race for the control of the human mind, and it calls for you know desperate measures. Hmm. I would just say, with the number of destabilized nations right now across the globe, it makes me wonder if there isn't some kind of, this is conspiratorial, but some kind of smaller operation that's still studying interrogation techniques out there in black sites. Sure. I mean, they're just so, there's so many places where it could be happening, where there is a, even a small CIA footprint. Mm. Yeah. Well, on that note, we did get to the present day yeah, yeah. <laughs> in a very scary way. Uh, we hope that you do not consider this show a form of mind control <laughs> because it's, it's just – it hit me when you were describing this, Brett. You said, uh, you said, you know, the real form of brainwashing and mind controlling is just hanging out and talking with people. Yeah. And getting them over on your side and it hit me. I thought, oh, no. Have we accidentally become Brett? Brett, yeah. <laughs> Brett has a very disarming smile, uh, and, it, and it does make me a little nervous. <laughs> but we do want to. We do want to thank you so much for taking the time to uh, come on the show today and teach us a little bit more about the real world inspirations behind the control group. Which, when you check out the show, uh, does sound like there's no way it could have really happened. But it's presented in a very plausible escalation because it did happen. Yeah. And just to make sure, Ronald Grant, is that Frank Olson? It sort of is Frank Olson, except uh, Frank Olson did not die under the same circumstances in which – there are a number of parallels between Mm. the control group and the real-life counterparts. So if you're a real fan, you know that um, Morgan Hall – is the alias of George White, who's the notorious former Bureau of Narcotics agent who was in charge of the safe houses where Operation Midnight Climax and other things mm. went on. So there's there's lots of uh, sort of Easter eggs for uh, you know, people who are fans of this kinds of information. Mm-hmm. We, we left a lot of things unsaid well, in this in particular. Exactly. Just show. want to put that out there. We don't want to spoil it. There, it's This is an interesting thing you could do right now. I'm going to do this after we conclude this mm-hmm. show. I'm going to go back and listen to the MK Ultra episode that we did. Then I'm going to go and finish episode six because that's the one uh, I'm, I'm currently on in the control group. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to see where all those parallels are because it's – I can see it already up until this point. But episode nine is Midnight Climax. So I want to yeah, really want to listen to that one. <laughs> And uh, thank you, of course, folks, for tuning in. We would love to hear your stories or accounts. And this might be opening a little bit of a risky door. But if you have knowledge of what you consider to be unethical or illegal human experimentation occurring in modern day, or if you know of something that did happen and has not yet reached the public sphere for one reason or another, contact us. We would like to hear from you. You can write to us on social media. We got the Facebook, we got the Instagram. We are Conspiracy Stuff Show on Instagram, mm-hmm. and Conspiracy Stuff on Facebook and uh, Twitter. Right? Mm-hmm. Am I mm-hmm. getting that all right? Cool. Yeah, yeah. And you know, there's another way to, to get to us too, but we'll, we'll hold off on that for a second. We want to find out first a little bit more about our guest. 
That's right. Brett, where can we listen to The Control Group and learn more about you and your films and all of that stuff? We can find The Control Group at uh, Apple Podcasts and all major podcast platforms. And uh, we have a site, which is uh, controlgroup.show. And uh, as far as me, uh, I'm on the Internet Movie Database, and I don't maintain like a regular profile type page, but uh, I try to stay active in the social medias as much as I can. Mm -hmm. And you can also find uh, the Control Group social media on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter if you want to interact directly with the show. There's some really cool visual aspects to it that I think are, are definitely worth the digital trip. And all the films that I've made, including The Unwanted and, of course, Hell's Highway, are available on DVD from Kino Lorber. So get out there right now. Uh, you can go ahead and – no, don't pause this yet. Let it finish. But then subscribe to the control group and then start listening to those episodes right after this. Uh, and, then tell and that's the end of this classic episode. If you have any thoughts or questions about this episode – you can get into contact with us in a number of different ways. One of the best is to give us a call. Our number is 1-833-STDWYTK. If you don't want to do that, you can send us a good old-fashioned email. We are conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.